All right, well, thank you guys. Again, thank you for greeting one another and being so friendly. That's uh, certainly an encouragement. Um, as most of you know, Pastor Josh is out living the life. It's his uh, 10-year anniversary with Becky, and uh, he's away just enjoying time together, and I know he's thankful to you guys for making space in his schedule to allow him to be away. So on, on his behalf, I'm going to thank you for him. I'm sure he'll thank you next week, but I know he really appreciates it and, and all the grace and, and, uh, and prayers that you guys are, are just showering with. So thank you for that, um, which means that I'm your preacher this morning. Um, no booing, no, uh, no heckling. Uh, maybe next week, that's fine, but just save it for next week. Um, so we're going to continue on in First Peter. As you know, we've been working through this amazing epistle uh, from Peter to these suffering Christians of Asia Minor for some time now. Last week, we took a little breather as Pastor Loney came in and preached from Philippians, but we are back in First Peter. And uh, open your Bibles with me. We're going to start in First Peter chapter 4. Verses 1 to 11. 1 Peter 4, 1 to 11, God's Word reads, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions before the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, They might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, Please pray with me. Holy Father in heaven, we come together as a people with one heart eager to praise You. We lift high the name of Jesus Christ, the name that is above every other name, and we worship You, Lord Jesus, together this morning. God, we know that there is no one like You. We know no one is worthy the way You are. We know nobody is is, as deserving of glory and proclaim and honor the way You are, holy God. So Father, I pray this morning, as we hear Your Word, as we come underneath its authority and and, and come into contact with its power to strengthen and encourage and convict us, we pray for great humility before You, the Holy God. Let us submit to You, Lord. Let us receive Your Word. Please, Holy Spirit, come stir us up, apply it to our hearts that we might not just hear it, but live it, Lord. And not for our glory, but for Yours. So God, I pray even now, in this moment, as we are about to hear this Word, Your Word to us, we pray that You would just do something in our hearts that prepares us to receive it. So Lord, please come, we pray. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Two more weeks. Just two more weeks. Now those were the words that were running through my mind. Uh, At the time, I was uh, working in the administrative offices of a law school, but I had these plans to move away to go to grad school. Uh, So I I walked into work, I went into my boss's office, I shared my plans, and I submitted this letter of resignation. I gave my two weeks notice. And that's a uniquely gratifying feeling. It's like the adult version of the last day of school. You've worked hard, you're, you're ready to move on, 
And uh, in two weeks' time, you are going to be moving on to the next chapter of life. Well, as freeing as it was to give my two weeks' notice, I didn't have this feeling of total freedom that a kid might have on the last day of school. You see, I wasn't reciting those words two more weeks because I just couldn't wait to get out of my job. I was reciting those words because I knew that after years of working with my coworkers and never articulating the content of my faith, I now only had two more weeks to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And soon enough, those two more weeks became, all right, one more week. That's all I got. Seems like enough time. Got one more week, which soon became, all right, three more days. That's it. I've got three days to share Jesus with these people, which quickly became two more days. I've got two more days. That's it. And then with this intense conviction of the Holy Spirit just sitting heavy on my heart, I remember walking into work and saying, all right, this is it. Last day. One more day. I've got one day to share Jesus with these people. This may be the last chance I will ever get. This might be the last time I will ever see them. It's got to be today. And all day, the hours just seemed to whittle down. And all I thought about was how I had to take this stand for Christ in my workplace. And I found myself at this pivotal moment, uh, this moment of decision, feeling torn in two directions. I was feeling insecure, intimidated, scared to open up my mouth on this hand. And then on the other hand, I was feeling this deep conviction of the Holy Spirit to open my mouth and share Christ. So I I was at this pivotal moment and I found myself uh, standing there holding this box of belongings about to leave for the day. Uh, I was moments away from walking out the front entryway door for the very last time, possibly never to see these people again. And I was just wrestling in my own heart with what I would do. You see, my issue was one of fear. I was afraid of possibly encountering animosity and rejection because of my faith in Jesus Christ. I was afraid to suffer even in some small way, so what should have been an easy decision just became gut-wrenchingly difficult. Oftentimes, living out our faith in Jesus in this world that's unfriendly and antagonistic to the gospel is hard. It's, it's challenging. And like many times, like you, many times I've come up against that hard decision to either articulate my perspective from a Christian worldview and possibly incur any sort of uh, contentious response that, that I may receive or say nothing about Christ. Letting my words, my actions, my life just sort of blend in with those who reject Him in order that I wouldn't have to worry about being rejected or mocked or shamed because of Him. Well, this issue of living out our faith in this world that largely rejects the Gospel is real. It's an issue that God's people, the church, have grappled with for over 2,000 years. Truth is, if you are faithful to God, you will suffer. That is unavoidable. It is inevitable. So also for 2,000 years, God's people, the church, have gathered to prayerfully consider Peter's epistle. This letter that guides the way we are to think about suffering, but also provides real insight and instruction and encouragement for us while we are suffering. So far, Peter, in writing to these Christian believers, these, these persecuted, suffering men and women who are trying to live out their faith in God, Uh, within this Roman Empire that's so eager to stomp out Christianity has offered all kinds of encouragement. Peter's uh, been quick to root these guys in their new identity in Christ. We see it all in chapter 1. He's quickly to remind them, you are God's elect. You are chosen for relationship with Him since before the foundations of the earth were laid. He reminds them, you are sanctified. You are set apart for holiness through Christ. He tells them, you are born again. He tells them you are now sojourners on earth. You are not people who are bound to this temporal place. You are people whose true home is in heaven with God. He reminds them you have an uh, imperishable inheritance that's been secured for you by Christ. So know who you are. Embrace this new identity in Jesus. This identity that Jesus has purchased for you. And then Peter builds on that foundation. Encouraging these suffering Christians, since you have this new identity in Christ, Live as new creations in all phases of life. Right? He's talked about 
living out this new identity in society, in your culture, uh, in submission to authority, in Christian community, in your marriages, in the home, and even in suffering. And today's text will clearly display that that Peter is concerned with equipping his beloved brothers and sisters to suffer well and to suffer rightly. Uh, So let's turn again to this amazing letter from God to us. We're in 1 Peter Chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. It's a text primarily about bringing glory to our God in our suffering. And the first thing Peter communicates in these verses is that in suffering, thinking like Christ will help you respond like Christ. Verse 1 Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now in typical Peter fashion, though he's writing to these mistreated Christians, he is so quick to begin this text by once again citing the suffering of Jesus Christ. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. This has become a trend in Peter's writing, hasn't it? You see, he hasn't just been, uh, just, just been satisfied to simply say, here's your new identity, go live it out. He's rooting everything, he says, who Jesus is. What Jesus has accomplished for His people. The empowerment, the example that Jesus provides for us. With that in mind, so far the letter has just been chuck full of Christology. Theology of Christ. We see it at the end of chapter 1. We see it at the end of chapter 2. We see it at the end of chapter 3. And he's talking about Christ again here. Why is Peter constantly shifting his reader's attention back to Christ? You see, Peter knows that as these guys suffer, you absolutely cannot divorce uh, the theology, the power, the person of Jesus Christ from your daily living. And if you hear me say today as we work through this text, if what you leave thinking as, as an application point is, man, I need to be a better Christian. If you hear me say, go be more faithful, go suffer better, then I am failing you. These things are founded in Christ, they're exemplified by Christ, they are empowered by Him, and they are for Him. Apart from the Lord Jesus, even the most obedient person uh, would be hopelessly lost, would fall miserably short. Apart from reliance upon Jesus Christ, every one of us would come, we'd open up our Bibles, we'd read this passage, and we would be totally impotent to incorporate this truth into our lives. So if we're going to respond to this by embracing this Christian life of boldness and faithfulness, if we're going to suffer the way Peter wants us to, is encouraging us to, we are going to need the grace and the power of Jesus. Now according to Peter, Jesus' suffering is the archetype for how we are to suffer. We see it in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now this verse uncovers that suffering well involves thinking like Christ, doesn't it? And when Peter exhorts, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, he has something specific in mind. And that exhortation, that encouragement, arm yourselves is an imperative. It is a command that he's communicating with real force. In fact, another way of translating that that maybe clarifies the force of what Peter is saying is to translate it saying, you must arm yourselves. This being armed is essential if we're going to persevere the suffering that this life is going to bring. But arm yourselves with what? Peter just says with the same way of thinking. Applying the same way way of thinking that, that Christ had. And that word thinking can also be translated as resolve. This is a word which in context references a mindset that informs obedient living. Peter is saying since Jesus is the perfect example of how to suffer well, arm yourselves with the same resolve that Jesus had, with the same mental approach to suffering that resulted in complete obedience. Which begs the question, what was Jesus' resolve like? What did Jesus' thinking look like? What did it include? Well, Scripture has a lot to say about this. We know that He approached His experience in this world, including His suffering, with tremendous humility. Last week, Pastor Loney preached the 
beautiful Christ hymn of Philippians chapter 2. And one of the main themes pulling out of those, those, those incredible verses is the extreme humility of Jesus Christ. Poke back over to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. This is a good reminder for us. This is, this is a text you just can't read enough, so we're going to read it again together. Philippians 2, 5 to 8, God's word reads, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, even though Jesus was the very highest, he made himself the very lowest. And approaching his experience on earth, which included tremendous suffering, he was armed with this resolve of humility. We also know that Jesus' resolve, his way of thinking, included obedience in the suffering. Peter's already talked about this, hasn't he? You remember 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 to 22? It reads, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Peter says that Christ also suffered, but he committed no sin. Now this comes after Peter discusses enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly in verse 19. Jesus suffered, but he was obedient in the suffering. For Jesus, this meant he wept with his people in a way that honored the Lord. This means he agonized over the pain that he knew he was going to the cross, even though he didn't deserve the cross. This meant he wept in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yet while he wept, while he hurt, while he agonized, while he felt the heartache, he was faithful and he was obedient. We also know that within Jesus' resolve, within his thinking, was this conviction to entrust himself to God the Father rather than responding to his abuse apart from the Father. 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Also, composing Jesus' thinking, his resolve was this willingness to suffer sacrificially. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in this body on the tree. He bore our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus' resolve while on earth also included a reverent reliance upon God the Father and a willingness to learn by his suffering, through his suffering. We see it in Hebrews chapter 5. Verse 7 and 8, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. You see, Jesus knew His faithfulness to God was going to elicit suffering on earth. He knew that, but He had a specific way of thinking. He had a specific resolve about that suffering that informed his living. You see, all of what we just talked about, uh, it involved approaching his abuse humbly, obediently, sacrificially, in submission to and reliance upon and trust of the Father. He wasn't sinning. In short, Jesus was resolved to suffer faithfully rather than to sin. That was his resolve. To suffer faithfully rather than to sin. And then Peter writes this letter to these suffering Christians whose own faith in Jesus Christ is bringing about their persecution. And he says, okay guys, listen. Think about your suffering the way Jesus thought about His. And Peter's message would be the same for you and I today. If you're fearful to stand for Christ in this life because you think it will bring you suffering, if you're in the midst of maybe being abused for your faith and you just don't know how to to, to faithfully persevere as a Christian in this culture, look no further than Jesus Christ. 
And rather than avoiding the suffering altogether or compromising your faith in the suffering, approach the hardship that is in your life with the resolve of Jesus. Now Peter continues, and we learn that there are implications to us taking on the resolve of Christ. And uh, the major implication that Peter notes here is that arming yourself with this type of resolve will help you uh, to stop indulging in the sins of the flesh. He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now what does for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin mean? Well, discerning how Peter is using the word flesh, figuring out what, uh, how, to, how to interpret uh, that phrase, suffered in the flesh, is going to inform our interpretation. In one sense, we know that uh, believing uh, on and being justified by Christ sets you free once and for all from sin, doesn't it? That's how Paul often uses the word flesh. We see him using the flesh that way in Romans chapter 6, verse 6. It says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body which is actually the same word as flesh. It just gets glossed differently in different places. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He's saying the overwhelming, the intense, the enslaving power of sin has been overcome and destroyed by Jesus Christ once and for all. So for Paul, it's impossible for the Christian to go on living in the flesh because he or she is no longer bound by sin, but has been made new, freed by Jesus. And if you are a believer, that is true for you. So Paul uses the flesh as a a negative reference to the old nature that's been abolished uh, by Christ. But that's not how Peter's using the word flesh here. Instead, Peter employs this word flesh to reference our earthly experience before, our, before we die. He uses the word flesh here to reference our time on earth. The time God has given us on earth, our experience here in the flesh. And in this life, though on one level Christ has abolished sin once and for all, and that is true, we will not fully realize the power of Christ's victory over sin until Jesus returns. So we still wrestle with sin here and now. And this earthly experience that Peter is describing um, entails our capacity to continue to sin. And Peter's encouragement is this. The believer who suffers, armed with the resolve of Christ, learns from that suffering to stop sinning. And also it exhibits that he or she is about obedience to God and is therefore equipped, as we read, to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's a strong exhortation that is meaningful for all of us. Um, For some of you, this is just a timely reminder. This is a good reminder encouraging you to have proper perspective uh, about how, how you're thinking about suffering. But it's also strengthening you to know that this perspective will bring about a lifestyle focused on God's will rather than the passions of the flesh. So for some of you, it's a great reminder. For others, these verses are a wake-up call this morning. Maybe you are a Christian, but you have not been honoring the Lord with obedient and faithful living. Maybe rather than claiming the promises of your new identity uh, in Christ, accepting the persecution that might come with that, um, and honoring Christ in the way you endure it, maybe you are consistently taking the easy road of less resistance, unwilling to stand for Christ and endure the criticism. Maybe unlike your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, your resolve has been weak. And if that's you, let this text wake you up this morning. Um, I, love, uh, I love people watching. I think I've mentioned that before, but I, I do. I just think it's fascinating. And um, last week I was at the beach and I was sitting in my chair and I noticed this guy, a couple blankets over, and he was just conked out, just totally asleep. I mean, not just sort of dozing. He was asleep. He was in deep sleep, um, which happens often at the beach, and then no big deal. And then I kept kind of surveying, and I see this little kid down by the water. 
And he's playing with his bucket in the water. And he looks up and he sees, and this guy must have been his dad. And he sees his dad sleeping. And he gets all excited. So he fills up the bucket. And he starts charging up the beach. And I mean, this kid just had mischief in his eyes. Ear to ear grin. And uh, he, 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 he walks right up to his dad. He creeps right up. And uh, almost without even stopping, he just sort of in one motion just threw the bucket of water in his dad's face. And as soon as the water hit his dad's face, the guy jumped. He was shocked awake. The water startled him out of his sleep. If your resolve has been weak, let this portion of God's Word startle you back to standing for Christ, regardless of the earthly repercussions. As if you were getting splashed in the face with icy cold water today. So where do you land in all of this? Do your words, do your actions, do your attitudes, do your responses to the world communicate to the world that Christ is worth suffering for? Or would you rather not take a stand for Christ in order to avoid the tough realities of the Christian life? Do you live as we read verse 2 no longer for human passions, but for the will of God? If so, God's Word says that you will suffer somehow, some way, big or small, you will suffer. And having the resolve of Christ will help you to suffer like Him and for Him. Well, verses 1 and 2 show us that in suffering, thinking like Christ will help you to live like Christ. And now the text reveals that responding like Christ will set you apart from the world. Look again at verses 3 and following. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Verse 3 clearly shows us that the time for sinful living is over for God's people. It says, For the time that is past suffices for what the Gentiles want to do. You hear that, Christian? The time is past for all of that stuff. No more. And do you catch what Peter's doing here? He's making a sharp distinction. He's drawing a line in the sand. There is life before you knew Jesus, and there's life after you knew Jesus, and the two simply are not going to look the same. Now, of the six behaviors that are mentioned in those verses, the first five refer to sinful abuses of sex, drinking, and excess. He mentions living in sensuality. It's a term referring to licentious acts of abandon, lewd behavior. It talks about passions. It means a desire for something forbidden, a craving or a lust, which in the context most likely refers to some forbidden lust for the sexual. Sex, which God created as a beautiful gift for a man and woman in marriage, now perverted by lust. Drunkenness, the excessive abuse of alcohol, Becoming impaired from overdrinking. Orgies. It's a word in the Greek which is a bit broader than what we know in the English. In the original language, it can mean either excessive feasting, excessive partying, or it can refer to excess of sex and carousing. Drinking parties. Much like today, it was commonplace in the first century for people to hold banquets where people are drinking a lot and becoming drunk together. All of these behaviors display a perversion of God's plan for His people, but they also display a lack of self-control. And then there's the last one, lawless idolatry. It refers to the misplaced worship of false gods rather than the proper worship of the one true holy living God. And here God's Word tells the believer that whatever time you once spent in licentiousness and excessive sinful living and idolatry, That time is over. It is no more. We no longer live to indulge the passions of the flesh. We now live for the will of God. 
Peter's, Peter's been clearly talking about this. It is on his heart. He's, he's writing this letter so pastorally. He cares so much for these believers that they would live out their faith in a way that honors God. 1 Peter 1.14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. This is not new instruction. He's continually bringing this around. It's important for us to hear. And Peter tells us that though it's appropriate to be done with the sinful lifestyle, your new way of living will surprise people and they will malign you for it. They will be surprised and they will malign you. Now here's what Peter's not saying. He's not saying that every unbeliever um, lives this lifestyle of sinful excess. He's not saying that. He's also not saying that every non-Christian is going to come along and abuse and persecute you. He's not saying that. But he is saying some do and some will. So don't be naive to it. Now in the first century, excessive acts of uh, sex and lust and drinking were common parts of religious celebrations, uh, family celebrations, festivals, holidays, civic events. They were commonplace. And to withdraw from those things meant you were making a statement on their whole way of life. And people would see you no longer taking part. And man, it would surprise. They might even malign you. Peter's original audience also existed in this polytheistic culture, which means they worshipped many gods. So few people would have been offended just to hear that you worshipped some guy named Jesus. That was commonplace. Oh, okay, people worship gods from all over the place. That wasn't hugely a big deal for them until the Christian in boldness stands up and says, no, I don't quite think you get it. I'm saying Jesus is the only God and every other is a fake and a counterfeit and an idol. And anyone who worships anyone or anything but Jesus is, is an idolater. Well, that message is highly offensive. It would surprise people. They might even malign you for it. So the world they lived in, um, people would have been surprised and would have possibly heaped abuse on you for living out your faith. That was true for them. And you know what? The same is true for you and I. Oftentimes your friends, your, your coworkers, your neighbors don't like it when you no longer affirm their sin. When you're no longer going along with them in sin, they don't like it. It surprises them and you may start to hear about it. Similar to the polytheism of the first century, we live in a pluralistic society, which means that we, we, we don't have any sense of absolute truth anymore. We no longer look at this and say, this is absolute truth. It is authority for everyone. And, and our culture accepts this as absolute truth. That doesn't happen. What works for you works for you. What's true for you is okay for you. What I believe works for me. And that's the best way of approaching spiritual matters. Well, Karen Jobes points out the similarities of our cultures saying this. In our pluralistic age, everything spiritual seems acceptable except the exclusive claims of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that ring true? Everything spiritual seems acceptable except the exclusive claims of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So your friends, your coworkers, your family members, they, they might be cool with it if you say, oh, I'm a Christian. I worship Jesus. Like, oh, great, that works for you. Good. Until you stand up and with, with grace... And in love, you say, no. I'm saying the God I worship is the only God. I'm saying Jesus is the only Savior. And to believe anything different is to believe a lie. Because in standing for the truth of Jesus Christ, you're no longer affirming their beliefs as being okay. It surprises people and they may malign you for it. So do you see why you can expect to suffer as someone who's faithfully living out the Christian life? Well, the question for you to consider is the same question that just haunted me. And I, I'm not kidding. It haunted me when I was standing there with a box of belongings about to leave for the day. It's the same question for you this morning. The question is this. Will knowing that you will encounter people who will malign you for confessing the gospel of Jesus Christ 
keep you from confessing the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will knowing that you will encounter people who will malign you for confessing the gospel of Jesus Christ keep you from confessing the gospel of Jesus Christ? And if you struggle with answering that question, just hear Peter's encouragement to you. He says that every one of your detractors, every naysayer, every persecutor will someday have to give an account. Look at verse 5. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God is ready to judge the living and the dead. Universally, all of us will come under the judgment of this righteous God. As a believer, this should give you peace knowing that in Christ you're in right standing with God. Praise Him for that. It should also give you peace knowing that all of the, all of the abuse that's been, been carried out against you will not go unpunished forever. But it should also give us urgency to share the Gospel. For the judge is ready and there are many that do not know Him and will have to be held accountable. So, urgency. The other encouragement is from verse 16. If you're having trouble wrapping your mind around how you would answer that question. Verse 6. This is why the Gospel was preached even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. And when Peter, Peter says that the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, he's not saying that the gospel is preached to people who are dead. Um, he's saying believers heard the gospel when they were alive, and then they died. They heard the gospel in life, they responded with faith by grace in Jesus Christ, and then they died. But while they were alive, uh, they were judged according to human standards, and they were condemned for their faith in Jesus. But these believers are now alive in the Spirit, living in the Spirit because of Christ. They're in heaven with God. This is sweet confirmation that living for Jesus now is the right decision. It is also encouragement that the harshness of this life is not the end of the road for us, God's people. So take verses 5 and 6 to heart. These encouragements free you for the, from the temptation to water down your faith. They free you from the temptation to assimilate to a lifestyle that is ungodly. And they free you from this desire to execute judgment against your persecutors apart from God. God has got all of that covered. Take heart. Have peace. And trust that the rest is in God's care. Well, so far, God has provided powerful words for His people. He's communicated to us that in suffering, thinking like Christ will help us to live like Christ. And then He's told us in living like Christ will set you apart from the world. But He's not done speaking. As we keep reading, we discover that as set apart, serving God in our suffering will bring Him glory. Look at verse 7 to 11. 1 Peter 7 to 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength of that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now there's a lot packed into those five verses. But one phrase anchors every word. The end of all things is at hand. Everything else we read from verse 7 to 11 is to be taken in light of the truth that the end of all things is at hand. Now, following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we live in this special time of redemptive history. The Savior's come. He's made the once-for-all once sacrifice for His people. Victory through Jesus has already been won, uh, but won't be fully realized until Jesus comes again. So in the scope of re redemptive history, we know that we are in the last stage. So we can anticipate the second advent of, of Christ as those who really have confidence that the end is near. And it's appropriate that this insight into the nearness of the end, to the nearness of Christ's second advent, to the nearness of His judgment, 
would change the way we live now. That your perspective on the future would influence your life here and now. And thinking rightly about the future ought to affect your present living like this. He says, with self-control and sober-mindedness. Peter tells them, be self-controlled and sober-minded. You remember that list of uh, sinful acts that we we, we talk through in verse 3? Remember how one of the things uh, that was stringing them together was this this theme of of lack of self-control? Well, in contrast to that sinful lifestyle, armed with the resolve of Christ, prepared with the awareness that the end is coming soon, Peter says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now those are two verbs that are communicating one idea. Clear-minded discipline. How can you suffer faithfully rather than to sin if your mind is governed by lust and disordered by drunkenness? And remember, for Christ's resolve and the reality of the second coming to be foremost in your mind, you need Jesus for those things, right? We don't just get there in our own efforts. We need Christ. We rely upon Christ for that. And Peter says that self-control and sober-mindedness affects your prayers. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. How can you take up this posture of reliance upon uh, the grace and the power of Jesus Christ if your prayers are hindered by your sin? So as you suffer and are mindful that the end is near, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Thinking rightly about the future also will affect the way we live in the here and the now and the present by producing an outpouring of love. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Loving each other is so important to Peter, he says it's above all. He tells us to do it continuously. He says keep loving. That's ongoing action. It's continuous. It's not a one-time event. It's something that's constantly going to be there within believing community. And he says to do it earnestly. He also says that love covers a multitude of sins. uh, Which means that in the church, the love that we have for each other uh, endures our mess-ups and our mistakes. It is patient. It is is understanding. It is long-suffering. It is a love that cultivates unity despite the fact that we're all fallen and flawed. Uh, Many of you know that this past February, uh, my dad passed away. And I remember in the days following, a family member um, came over and was just comforting me. And um, one thing that she said was, you know, draw near to your sister in this time. My sister. It's like, okay. Um, and, and what she was thinking was that as my sibling, she's the only one that knew exactly what I was feeling. She's the only other one that was raised by my dad the way I was. She's the only one that had a similar type of relationship to him. She's the only one that loved him the way I loved him. She's the only one that was mourning the way I was mourning and feeling the way that I was feeling. She's really the only one that could have related on such a deep level to what I was going through. As brothers and sisters in Christ, as people who suffer together for Christ, We will have unique insight into the challenges of the Christian life like no unbeliever could ever have. So since we understand each other's struggles with this unique insight, let's love each other with this love that is so grand that it covers the pettiness of relational squabbles and personality conflict and differences and different discords. Let the love that we have for one another just swallow up that stuff. Not to say that there isn't a place for biblical um, um, church discipline, because there is. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying let your love cover over all of that stuff. One expression of this kind of love is hospitality. He talks about it in verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now hospitality in the Christian community, like in the world, can take all kinds of different forms. It could be something as easy as just saying, hey, let me take you out for a cup of coffee and chat for a couple minutes. Or it could be something that's truly costly to you, some act of service. Either one is great, but he says do it in grace, not in grumbling. 
He's concerned with what's going on in your heart as you're being hospitable to your brothers and sisters. Don't do it from a grumbling heart. Do it from one filled with grace. And then lastly, thinking rightly about the future will affect your current living with the use of your spiritual gifts. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now those verses um, unearth information for us about spiritual gifts. We learn things about the gifts from those two verses. One of them is that we know that each has received a gift. Um, That's what Peter says. If you're a believer, that means you. God has gifted you in some way, whether you recognize that gifting or or, or understand what it is or or anything. He's gifted you. You have a gift. These verses also show us uh, that these gifts are given to believers to be stewarded uh, in service to others and in the strength of God. It says, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So your spiritual gifts were not given to you for you. They weren't given to you for your benefit. They were given to you so that you could steward them in the service of others for the, for, for, for the greatness of God and the strength of God. So if you've been granted a speaking gift, communicate the word of God faithfully. If you've been granted a servant, a service gift, serve God in His strength. So from verses 1 all the way through the beginning of verse 11, Peter has laid out this logical progression of thought um, for suffering Christians to consider. He's made it clear that in suffering, thinking like Christ will help you to live like Christ. He's made it clear that uh, uh, in living like Christ, that will set you apart from the world. And now he's made it clear that as set apart, you have opportunity to serve God. And then we get to the overarching, big, all-important idea that I want you to go home confessing. So hear this. What serving God in your suffering brings is not something small. Serving God in your suffering doesn't bring about anything trite. Serving God in your suffering doesn't bring about anything that's even just really cool. Serving God in your suffering results in God's glory. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you know that your suffering because of the Gospel brings God glory? Do you know that your obedience, as hard and challenging as that may be, results in God's glory? Do you know that your service, as taxing as it may be, brings God glory? Isn't that amazing? Is there anything so worth pursuing than God's glory? Is there anything so motivating as working hard to bring God glory? God's glory has been Peter's concern throughout the letter. Verse one, or chapter 1, verse 7, he says, so that, the, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, he says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when you speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter is all about the glory of Jesus Christ. So is the chief concern of your heart and your mind the glory of Jesus Christ? Or are you more concerned with your own glory? Or are you so preoccupied with your circumstances? I will tell you this. According to Peter, circumstances do not excuse you from bringing God glory. If circumstances are hard, strive for God's glory in the way you navigate those circumstances. Bring Him glory right where you are, however you can, with whatever whatever gifts He's given you. Bring Him glory. So what are you going to do 
with this passage from Peter. Um, If I can, let me just echo Peter's love and concern um, for the suffering Christians of Asia Minor in an exhortation to you. Don't take the easy road. Don't take the easy road going agreeably and passively with the world in a way that robs Jesus from claiming glory from your life. Instead, trust God enough to take the hard road. Stand for Him, armed with the resolve of Jesus Christ, set apart from the world, serving well, using your gifts, even if it means suffering and being maligned and rejected, because walking down the hard road of the Christian life results in God's glory. So suffer like Christ so you can glorify God like Christ. So I was standing there holding this box of belongings and I was about to walk out the front door uh, for the last time. And um, honestly, I was feeling paralyzed by this conflict that was going on in my heart. And then my coworkers just began to rustle. And it was time to go home. They started gearing up to go home. They got their stuff. And soon enough, we were all, we were all walking out together. And uh, as they were wishing me well and all of that stuff, it just became apparent to me. What, was, what started off as, all right, two more weeks. I got two weeks. Now became 20 seconds. I've got 20 seconds. From the door to our cars, that's all the time I've got left to open my mouth and share Christ with them. And with the Holy Spirit just convicting me so strongly, I stood there and I watched my coworkers get into their cars and drive away. Um, let me tell you, to my shame, I left the last day without saying a word about Christ to anyone because I was afraid of any possible rejection or shame or whatever that might come up. So I got in my car and I just started praying and confessing and repenting and crying. And I was driving home and I just remember crying and confessing and pleading with God, Lord, strengthen me. May I never be fearful to suffer for Jesus Christ again. And maybe you've had an experience like mine and you can, in some way, I imagine that most of us in some way can relate to the cowardice and the sin and the unfaithfulness that, um, that, that, that was such a big part of my response there. And if you can, may we never be fearful to suffer for the sake of King Jesus Christ or because of our faith in Him ever, 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 ever again. Rather, might we suffer like Christ so we can glorify God like Jesus Christ. Let us suffer like Christ so we can glorify God like Christ. Let's pray. Father, we confess, Lord, with heavy hearts that we fall short, that we are sinful, that living as Christians in this place is challenging and hard. Lord, we so often want to give up and we just, we just bring that before You and confess it, but we also praise You that in Jesus Christ, we don't need to be perfect. That Christ lived the perfect life that we never could so that in Him we might have redemption and freedom from sin and relationship with You. So we thank You and praise You, God. And now that we know You and have been set free from sin, help us to bring You glory in whatever time You give us on this earth. We pray for that. In Jesus' name, amen.